Hello, and welcome to the History Respawn Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. This episode considers 1979 Revolution Black Friday, a game developed by Ink Stories about the 1979 Iranian Revolution. If you follow History Respawn on YouTube, you'll notice that this episode is about 15 minutes longer than the video version. This difference is on purpose, because I am trying to drive down the length of the YouTube videos in order to encourage viewer retention and also to reduce the amount of time I spend editing each video. And you can expect the same model for History Respawn going forward, meaning that you'll still have the same in-depth conversation with scholars about historical video games, but these interviews will appear edited on YouTube and unedited on our podcast. Don't forget that you can learn more about History Respawn on its website, historyrespawn.com. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting History Respawn on Patreon. With those production notes out of the way, let's turn to the episode. Welcome to History Respawn. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. Today's episode considers 1979 Revolution Black Friday, developed by Ink Stories. Set in Tehran in 1978, this game follows a young photojournalist living through the events leading up to the Iranian Revolution. Players witness the protest against the Shah firsthand and make choices about their own participation in the uprising. The game contains a wonderful set of collectible stories, which provide historical background for the player's interactive experience. With me to discuss this game is Dr. Zachary Hearn a professor of modern Middle East history and Islam at Idaho State University. Professor Hearn is the author of The Emergence of Modern Shiism, Islamic Reform in Iraq and Iran, published in 2015. Zach, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So, Zach, this game drops you into the middle of events in the fall of 1978, and I'm wondering if you could provide our viewers with a brief background in the events leading up to the Iranian Revolution. Sure, absolutely. And I have to say, um, you know, from a historian's point of view, I think it's a smart way of uh, designing the game. I think especially if it's going to be pitched and appeal to Westerners, because, you know, um, at least as a history prof- professor, hopefully that will mean that, you know, the players of the game would get into it and try to figure out what's going on. Right. Um, so I think that um, hopefully that's a smart, smart way of doing it. But in terms of the background of the revolution, we can consider several things that have to do with politics, economics, religion, and other social issues that were happening, um, you know, in the lead up to the revolution in the late 70s. So a few things in terms of the Middle East uh, that we have to consider. One is that this is still part of the decolonization period Mm. um, for the entire Middle East. Iran is um, a bit unique, uh, similar to Ethiopia and you know one or two other countries in in the so-called third world, that was not completely colonized. Although the British and the Russians basically controlled Iran, so b- because there were these two con- you know these two empires, the Russians and the British fighting for that territory, they basically came to an agreement and said, you know, the Russians will control the north and the British will uh, control the sphere of influence in the south. Uh, So, but it meant that, you know, the the Qajar dynasty, the uh, previous dynasty to the Pahlavis that we see in this game, 
were able to hold on. So it wasn't complete colonization, but all the same economic colonization, mm. um, and social and cultural colonization that we see in the rest of the Middle East is happening. So one of the main impetuses, I think, for this revolution is um, it's uh, anti-colonial. Um, and, of course, Iran, you know, the Pahlavi dynasty was founded after World War One, And, um, you know, so they had been free and sort of uh, uh, ruling in, in charge politically. But the United States especially was this, after World War II, was this, the emerging empire and has a lot to say about what happens in Iran, especially economically. And the big question, you know, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s is oil. Uh, right. The whole world had sort of converted to oil as one of the main energy resources, and Iran was one of the major, you know, oil-producing superpowers and was growing at an absolutely astronomical uh, scale in terms of its economics, largely because of oil, but it also has a very large population, and so it was reinvesting a lot of that money into other industries. So, so the 70s for Iran is also a real sort of veritable economic boom time, mm. although... And we might think, oh, wow, they're going well economically. Why are people then demonstrating in the streets? They should be happy that the economy is growing. But the average person was not really benefiting from this economic boom. So, so the, there's one of the classic, you know, sort of economic factors that, you know, are, are present in, in popular rev revolutions like this, where you have this huge economic disparity, where there is a lot of wealth flowing around, at least at the top. Uh, but it's not really trickling down uh, mm. to people. And so you have a lot of poverty um, right alongside, you know, immense amount of, amounts of wealth. And I think that's one of the economic issues uh, that are at play. And then the third thing in terms of r religiously what's happening is that the most outspoken individual about the, the sort of uh, anti-Shah um, movement is a cleric, is a Shia um, Ayatollah. And, you know, this is Ayatollah Khomeini, who we see images of, and he's sort of omnipresent in the in the video game as well, as he should be, um, because I think this reflects what was happening in Iran. So he was, uh, after protests, you know, what started as peaceful protests, and the police, you know, opened fire on, on some of these seminary students, you know, the so one, they had a martyr, and then after that, Khomeini was exiled first to Iraq and then to Paris. And, um, and he was, as we see in the game as well, he was, people were then smuggling cassette tapes and then, you know, um, distributing them, um, on the streets mm. in Iran. So his, and his entire message was anti-Shah, 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 also anti-imperial. Um, you know, it was also, you know, sort of taking some of the nationalist ideologies and, um, and even some of the sort of communist, sort of socialist messages as well, um, and sort of co-opting some of those mm. groups. Mm. Yeah. Um, what, you know, one of the things I want to ask you is that this game, you know, presents this revolution as really kind of a youth movement. And you know, what you had to say with regards to the economic disparities in Iran at this time, it seems like it would make sense that the youth would lead this revolution because they were the ones who were probably subjected to the worst forms of poverty. And perhaps also they might be co-opted 
by these religious clerics, uh, you know, having young and impressionable minds. So to, I mean, to what extent was the Iranian revolution a revolution of the youth? Yeah, they were incredibly instrumental in this. And, and you know, once, you know, the sort of revolutionary fervor starts, it's incredibly exciting for young people, college students, because these are people that have been studying, you know, a range of things from Marx to, you know, um, to all sorts of different sort of ideologies and ideas. I mean, the, the other thing that factors into all of this is that Iranians were uh, were and are still highly educated, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and highly literate. Um, so the ideologies that were floating around the universities were were now becoming very real. This wasn't just, you know, theories that you're studying in sociology class. You know, this was real life uh, mm-hmm. for a lot of these students. And, you know, and that's very exciting. So you and you have you know, people who are, um, you know, passionately discussing these issues. So for them, you know, and, and they start to feel like, oh, we can make a difference. We can make a change. Um, and some of these spokespeople of the revolution convinced them that they could do that and they could rise up and, mm-hmm. and really transform things, you know, and, and really sort of stick it to the man. Right. And that man being the Shah who was, you know, a pretty serious dictator. Right. Um, his um, secret police, the Savak, were were quite feared and uh, were pretty nasty to mm-hmm. people that they captured and tortured or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so this was a this was a chance for young people to feel that they're empowered to make some real change and stick it to the man all at the same time. Mm. Yeah, you mentioned the kind of various ideologies that went into uh, the revolution, and I think this game does a very good job of showing how those uh, ideologies competed with one another uh, in 1978. So, for instance, you've got characters in this game who are nationalists. You've got some who are the supporters of the clerics. Others are socialist or communist. Uh, and then finally you have a group that identify with the Mujahideen. And I was wondering if you could tell us what kind of relationship there was between these various competing ideologies. And was it always a foregone conclusion that the revolution would coalesce around Khomeini. Yeah, so you're right. I mean, and I think the game is right by pointing out that there are these different groups, um, sometimes vying for space, sometimes, you know, bridging the gap between them. But they all had one thing in common, that, and that is that they wanted the Shah to go. Mm-hmm. And, and they also were hyped up by this idea of, you know, taking back their resources uh, you know, and uh, distributing them to the people. So even, you know, there's a very strange alliance, actually, you know, one of those epic, weird alliances, I think, in in, in history between Marxists and the religious establishment. Mm-hmm. Because communists and religious establishments often don't see eye to eye because, of course, uh, Marx was, a, uh, was an atheist and communism is very anti-religion. You know, religion is the opiate right. of the masses. Right. So... So there, this is a very strange alliance, and I and I and I think you know we should be careful to say this was not a, str- a strong alliance, but there were several, you know, intellectuals and religious figures who were you know sort of taking elements of Marx's ideas and applying them, or at least trying to bridge that gap between you know Shiism, and I think the the strongest one was this idea of socialism of really sort of taking care of the poor and taking mm-hmm. care of people, which, you know, has been part of Islam from the very beginning. I mean, this was one of the central ideologies of 
Muhammad and the Quran. So, so it's not a huge stretch if you look at some of the social issues uh, that are at the heart of Marxism. Um, and then, of course, the others, nationalism, you know, by a lot of these groups is really read uh, as, you know, we're trying to take our resources back and, you know, get the... Um, get the West off our back. And and the religious establishment was okay with that as well because one of the economic issues, but also because, you know, the there's this idea that starts flowing around called, and it's such a great term, called West toxification or West toxication, hmm. in which, you know, Iranians were to- intoxified by, uh, by Westernization. All things West are good whether it's culture or drinking or gambling or whatever. Um, and of course the religious establishment wanted to get rid of all those things, especially the things that had to do with vice. And, you know, so one of the revolutionary moments coming up to the revolution was that some, you know, some people set, uh, young people set fire to a, um, to a movie theater yes, where all the vice happens, right? Cinema Rex. Yeah. Yeah. The Cinema Rex. Exactly. And like 400 people died in that. You know, and the and the news was not exactly clear at the time. So some people were like, "Oh, the Shah's doing it," or you know, so his PR was really incredibly bad during all of this process as well. Mm. But you have all these different elements coming around a few common ideologies and common issues. Oh, and do you think that it was a foregone conclusion that it was going to end up with the clerics dominating this revolution, or do you think there was ever a moment where? It could have been a socialist revolution or a nationalist revolution. Yeah, absolutely. This is, um, you know, probably one of the most, you know, the sort of strangest uh, outcomes if you're looking from the outside. Because, you know, this revolution in many ways was incredibly modern and um, was floating a lot of these modern ideas. And as far as people in the West were concerned... You know, religion is really not part of modernization. It's, mm-hmm. you know, secularism that will dominate. So so for a lot of people, this was very confusing that, you know, we have this revolution that's for the people and the, the clerics then come to dominate it. That's, I think, mm-hmm. one of the most, you know, sort of surprising um, and spectacular things about this particular revolution. But if you sort of understand the history of what was happening in Iran leading up to this time, it's not incredibly surprising because, you know, going back to the late, the late 1800s, you know, the clerics led two re- very revolutionary acts. The first one was uh, the tobacco revolt in, in the late 1800s in which, you know, the Shah at that time had basically sold all of the rights to the pr- production sale um, and distribution of tobacco, which was mm. a huge industry in Iran. So, and that brought this, a similar coalition together. So it was, and this was the first time this coalition had come together in Iran. So it was the clerics, uh, the Shia clerics, nationalists, um, intellectuals, and the business community. So, and then that same coalition came together in the constitutional um, revolution starting in 1905, and they mm-hmm. successfully established a constitution that was on the books by 1911. They had a parliament and, and the rest that was a bit short-lived because the Pahlavis that took, after, took over after World War One, you know, basically squashed it. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was one of the major issues that um, all the players in the revolution in 1979 had was that, you know, we already have a constitution. 
and the Shah is not is basically trampling all over it. Mm. Um, so, but in terms of whether you know, I, I, my own opinion is that the clerics, especially Khomeini, uh, really hijacked the revolution as soon as you know it, to, to sort of entrench himself in power. He you know he establishes this revolutionary court in which they um, very quick trials and they start executing people. So anybody that's sort of against the clerical establishment or perceived to be somehow in the way of the revolution, they executed them, like on the roof of his own headquarters. Uh, so by firing squad or by hanging them from cranes, very public, you know, sort of display. So it got, it got ugly very fast um, mm. afterwards. But Khomeini was an incredibly shrewd politician, and I think... You know, we look at his religiosity quite a bit, and I think rightly so, but I think he's more better perceived through the lens of a politician. At, mm. at the heart, he was a politician more than anything else. Mm. Well, kind of turning more specifically to this topic of religion in Iran, this game, you know, shows religion as an important motivation and as a device uh, for revolution in yeah. this time period. and. You know, for instance, in the game, uh, revolutionaries are shown uh, trading tapes, uh, recordings of cleric speeches, and they're also shown using mass prayer in the streets as a means yeah. of a protest. So I wonder if you could describe for our viewers, what was the relationship between religion and revolution in Iran? Yeah, it's an incredibly important one, uh, because in many ways, at least some of the clerics were leading it, others you know, might have said, okay, we can go along with some of the social ideas here and some of the morality um, issues, and we don't really love the Shah. But at the same time, they didn't necessarily, there were a lot of people, you know, clerics, and some of them still don't agree with this, you know, intense political involvement of Khomeini. I mean, Khomeini took it so far that said, you know, he said, the state is really everything. So even if we have mm. to suspend some religious uh, norms and ideology, um, you know, if it's in favor of the state, we can do that. And mm. for a lot of the religious sort of establishment, that was scandalous. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there were definitely those who were leading the revolution. Um, and, you know, it was seminary students, preachers who were leading, you know, and their speeches, you know, um, after Friday's uh, prayers, definitely were firing people up with um, religious rhetoric um, and then leading people into the street. And, and in many ways, the, you know, sort of religious center of Iran, which is in Rome, outside of Iran, it's sort of Vatican of the Shia world in terms of it being the sort of religious center. Um, that in many ways, at least at first, was ground zero for the revolution. So... Mm. So revolution was definitely important uh, in the process. And I think the religious element also appealed to the traditional sort of base of people in Iran that wanted to, you know, sort of dial back some of the secular ideas. And even, you know, one of the things that, that I think sparked the revolution was the Shah's so-called white revolution in which he laid out a number of reforms. So these were economic and social reforms, you know, that gave women the right to vote, uh, but also tried to destroy the old sort of landed aristocracy by redistributing uh, land. Mm. So I guess in the process, he pissed a lot of people off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It seems like the Shah is really good at that. And yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, we talked about some of the economic issues. One of the things I like to point out is that 
people found out that, you know, as they're sort of in sort of dire poverty, he was flying in his um, lunch from Paris, you know, and oh my uh, gosh. really living the high life. I mean, he had a whole garage full of, you know, what would now be sort of hundred thousand dollar cars of, you oh. know, and all the latest things. So, and, you know, he, he led this very extravagant lifestyle and he was very in your face about it. The other thing that he did was he launched the celebration of 2,500 years of monarchy in Iran and, you know, basically said, we are the oldest tradition in the world that has a sort of successive monarchs and I'm the heir to that. Um, and, and for the religious establishment too, that was a bit of a middle finger to them because, um, he really emphasized pre-Islamic culture, you know, and politics. Um, so he was sort of bypassing this 1400 years of, Right. You know, Islam in Iran and said, my, you know, my history is longer than yours. Yeah, exactly. And and, and we're going to really celebrate this pre-Islamic culture. Um, so so there was a short-lived resurgence of, of that in Iran mm. as well. And that's what, this was part of his agenda to secularize and um, westernize and modernize uh, Iran. Yeah, well... Speaking of ways in which the Shah pissed people off, uh, you know, the game does a really good job of depicting the close relationship between the Shah and the United States. And I think the best way that the game does this is by providing the players with depictions of graffiti uh, from 1978. And some of the graffiti images included, um, you know, monstrous versions of Uncle Sam, uh, and then also a depiction of the Shah dressed up like Darth Vader. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell us uh, what was the nature of the relationship between the Shah and America, and was this relationship always seen as a point of contention in Iran? Yeah, this is such a great question, and I have to point out the irony of you know um, this revolutionary act of depicting the Shah as Darth Vader. So they're taking a Hollywood movie, yeah. and sort of using it against the West, right? Uh, which is really uh, quite ironic and, and great at the same time. So, yeah, this relationship between the West and the Shah is very important. I mean, the Shah was a darling of the West, no question about it, and represented sort of the hopes and and dreams of the West in the Middle East in many ways. Um, And the United States was profiting, uh, seriously profiting from oil. You know, the American oil companies were getting a, um, a quite a large share of uh, of oil mm. um, in the country, you know, and then, and if you go back to the early 1950s, you know, the, um, there was a president Mossadegh who was a serious nationalist was, um, attempting to nationalize oil, which meant that he was, they would kick out the private foreign firms that were controlling oil. So this is, British Petroleum, the the um, BP, which actually had started, you know, the original name was the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, mm-hmm. and then the other sort of Dutch Shell and and the um, other American companies were involved, and they were profiting the most. So for a while, there was a, you know, sort of fifty-fifty power sharing agreement with Iran and um, and these uh, oil giants, um, and Mossadegh tried to nationalize oil and take that from them. He was wildly popular. And the CIA and the British basically overthrew him. So this mm. was uh, one of the many CIA coups around the world. And, of course, they 
the CIA and the U.S. branded it as a, um, you know, branded Mossadegh as a communist. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is at the height of the Cold War. So a lot of people went along with it, even though he was not a communist really at all. Um, so, so that was a very, very important moment for Iranians because, you know, prior to that time, and, you know, you think of like the late 40s and 50s, the United States had a lot of support around the world. Um, and especially in Iran, you know, um, you know, countries wanted to be sort of uh, just like the United States, who had started out as a colony and was now a great superpower of the world. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of support, but that really was a knife in the back for many Iranians, and they didn't, they, they would never forget that. So, so this, um, and the Shah represented this very close tie to the United States. Although, if you look at it closely, I mean, in the seventies. The Shah was int- instrumental in getting um, OPEC, the um, oil-producing countries, to jack up the price of oil. Mm. They, qua- he, they quadrupled the price of oil, which was one of the reasons that um, the economy was growing so fast. Uh, but and so the United States, of course, and the other oil-producing or the oil, um, you know, companies didn't like that idea. But the United States knew that that money would come back through um, arms, uh, and and yeah. and. Um, I think it was Nixon who basically green-lighted all sort of weapon sales to Iran other than nuclear weapons. So, you know, anything they, they wanted to buy, they would do that. So, you know, although oil was, you know, the price of gas was jacked up for the American citizen um, and others around the world, you know, the Iranian government or the U.S. government would still benefit. Hmm. So... You know, and also he was looked at as a liberalizer. I mean, he was giving women the right to vote and, you know, making some of these changes. You know, I think Kennedy and and other presidents were starting to get worried about his human rights record, but, you know, pushed him a little bit, but not too much. Mm-hmm. All right. And, you know, one of the kind of main groups that you come across during uh, the participation in the protests in this game is the SAVAK, uh, the secret police. And there's some mention made that uh, the SAVAK is actually trained by the CIA and other American police groups. Is there any truth to this? Yeah, so they were, the SAVAK was trained by the CIA and also uh, Mossad, which mm. is a similar force um, in Israel. Right. So, you know, you think back, you know, you think about the relationship between Iran and Israel now, you know, there couldn't be two countries that hate each other more um, at this point. And so, you know, that's still sort of one of the issues that looms large in the anti-Shah uh, sort of pro-revolution ideology that, you know, that these people are trained and, in, in, you know, very much uh, operating in the, in the Western sense, mm. uh, trained by the same CIA that overthrew our, you know, our democratically elected president in the 50s. So, you know, this type of ideology really hypes people up and gets them excited to make change. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. The game actually starts you out as a prisoner uh, in Evan Prison, uh, which is now, by this point, 1980, uh, being controlled uh, by the Ayatollah's men. And they seem to be using the same sort of tactics as yeah. the Savak against what's left of the other revolutionary movements that are not attached to the clerics. Yeah, this is an incredibly important point because, you know, if if the issues were human rights or social justice or whatever, the revolution um, and the, the current government in Iran, you know, is just as bad or, or I think even worse uh, than the Shah's regime. Mm. Um, 
I think Evin prison is um, even more notorious today than it was then. You know, there are all sorts of political prisoners, uh, social activists in in prison um, in Iran now. And and the other group that we don't hear about in the media, and I, I don't know if the video game really depicts that. I didn't see it, but you know, the largest religious minority in Iran are Baha'is, mm. and Baha'is were heavily targeted after the revolution in uh, 1979. So in the 80s, you know, they started the revolutionary court, started executing uh, Baha'is right and left. Baha'is, you know, Baha'i leaders disappeared, which is strange and interesting because, you know, the Baha'is really are not active uh, overtly in politics and didn't have much to say about the revolution um, and so, you know, in many ways, they're sort of scapegoated and still are. Mm. And incredibly, you know, the, the, at this at this point in time, they the Baha'is um, are not allowed in universities. And, mm. you know, so devastating what the revolution has done to Baha'is. Mm. Um, in fact, my own, you know, sort of in-laws uh, were subject to that. My father-in-law was executed because he was a Baha'i. Mm. Uh, my uncle-in-law is in prison right now in he and he's. You know, I'm not sure if he's still in Evin um, or he was. Uh, he may have been transferred. Mm. So, yeah. I mean, with that backstory, I mean, how do you feel about a game that's depicting this history? Do you think that this will make any difference to how Iranian history is betrayed, or do you think it'll make any difference for what's going on in Iran today? Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, um, I try to stay hopeful <laughs> that things will change. Um, you know, and the, the good thing is that, you know, at least, um, there is a democratic element, um, in Iran, you know, so there's hope that even some peaceful change could come, but, you know, I'm, I'm not incredibly optimistic. Um, but I think, you know, spreading knowledge and information about the history, I think is imp- incredibly important, uh, for people to be aware of. And I also learned that I think one of the articles that I read was that the one of the makers of this game is really not allowed back to Iran. That's correct. Yeah. For whatever reason, I'm not sure what his background is, but um, so you know, in many ways, this making this game is a revolutionary act for I think those who are doing it. Mm, yeah. Well, this is the first episode in what it hopes to be a series uh, for this game. And, uh, you know, this only follows the story from basically the early fall of 1978 until Black Friday. So here's mm-hmm. hoping that, uh, you know, the series continues and that uh, they get a chance to kind of go all the way uh, in explaining this, uh, the history of the Iranian Revolution. Yeah, that would be an incredibly revolutionary act to sort of make a game about what's happening now yeah. uh, sort of the post-revolutionary uh period because you know as i said things get um things get out of hand quick yeah. and especially you know f- from following the revolution you know 1980 um saddam hussein of iraq invades iran so right you know have that whole story and and the iranian government using this human wave tactic mm. of, and this martyrology of just putting young people on the front line and just dying it, you know, by the thousands. Mm. Um, so quite horrendous things that happen, you know. And it's one of those things that, you know, there were these early days of students and young people, you know, jubilation and excitement about the revolution, and it goes south, I think, for a lot of people very fast. And we saw this recently in the Arab Spring. I mean, yes, you know, a lot of people in Egypt and there's such excitement when the dictator leaves and then, 
you know, oftentimes it gets worse before, you know, hopefully in some time in the future it will get better. Mm. Well, on that optimistic note, <laughs> that's going to do it for us here at History Respawn. Thanks so much to my guest, uh, Dr. Zachary Hearn, for joining us today. Please tune in next month for another episode. 